Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 94. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasubu. I'm so glad you could join me. Later on in the show, I'll be chatting with Lionel Schmileski, who is the CEO of Cambridge Broadband Networks, a.k.a. CBNL. Now, they're a privately held multi-point microwave tech firm based in the UK. Um, they have an impressive customer list that includes seven of the world's top 10 mobile operators, and that includes African biggies like Vodacom and MTN. Now, stick around to hear Lionel share insights on the state of play on the continent's wireless network scene, and he'll also explain why recent advances in multi-point microwave tech are potentially game-changing. But before we get to all that, we'll cover the week's headlines, which include broadband access in parts of Cameroon continuing to be off, Cape Town commissioning what's been dubbed as the continent's first large-scale waste-to-gas facility, and the Afrobytes conference in Paris set to be bigger and better than ever this year. All that and more is coming up, but first, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is kindly brought to you by GoDaddy. Now, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. They're the world's largest domain registrar, and they're trusted by over 13 million customers around the world. They provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, you could save yourself 30% on a new domain name or on any of their other services by going to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech to save yourself 30%. Congratulations to the indomitable Lions of Cameroon for beating Egypt 2-1 to to win the Africa Cup of Nations trophy on the weekend. Now, I didn't watch the match, but I certainly accessed the result on Twitter. For an estimated 20% of Cameroon's uh, population, there's still no way to celebrate that win on social media or in fact do anything else on uh, the internet for that matter, because the government's internet shutdown, uh, which has gone on for nearly two and a half weeks uh, in the country's northwest and southwest regions, is still on the go. Now, internet nomads uh, from areas that have been cut off have had to journey to francophone cities like Douala and Yaoundé uh, to get connected. Now, in case you're not aware, here's how we got here. Broadband access was cut off on January 17th following months of public protests in Anglophone Cameroon. People were protesting against French being declared the country's first language for use in educational and judicial institutions. Now, of Cameroon's 10 regions, eight are French-speaking, while English is spoken in just two. As it happens, most of the country's biggest tech growth has happened in Anglophone parts of the country. I imagine that the fact that um, that part of the country communicates with the rest of the world in English has helped uh, that growth along. Um, But this prolonged broadband shutdown is being seen by many as a vindictive act by the government to show Anglophone Cameroon who's boss. But it does seem that it's becoming a case of the government cutting off its nose to spite its face. Because according to estimates put out by two advocacy groups, Cameroon lost $723,000 in the first 15 days of the shutdown. This has resulted in a profound loss of confidence in the government's much-publicized commitment to support the country's fledgling tech scene. So this is certainly an issue we'd like to see resolved sooner rather than later. I suppose uh, it's it's a small consolation that Cameroon has won the, the African Cup of Nations. The country does deserve a break of sorts. So congratulations to them. And here's to hoping they get their internet back. 
to Tanzania now, where citizens of Dar es Salaam can look forward to a bus rapid transport system uh, following that country's landing a $305 million loan from the World Bank. Now, Dar es Salaam is the largest city in the East African region uh, with a population of approximately 5 million people. Uh, The traffic congestion in that city is legendary, and it's widely considered a major inhibitor to the city's success in the long term. Now, currently, Tanzania relies on a chaotic transport system, which is serviced uh, mostly by privately owned minibuses uh, they call Matatu. And so when it's ready, the public transport system that they plan to build uh, will allow over 100 buses to run on dedicated bus lanes in and out of the center of the city. Now, Dar es Salaam's population is projected to grow to 10 million by the year 2030. And the region's largest port, Mombasa, is already showing strain due to limited capacity. So those are two solid reasons why the World Bank uh, has probably decided to bet on Dar uh, successfully upgrading its infrastructure to become East Africa's port of choice. Always a bit worrying to see massive sums of money being um, loaned to developing nations uh, by the the likes of the IMF and the World Bank, the World Bank in this case. But here's the hoping that this investment certainly makes that loan worthwhile. Now, staying with East African infrastructure news, the Netherlands-based American renewable energy multinational Gigawatt Global has broken ground on its second East African solar field. Now, just two years after launching the region's first commercial solar field in Rwanda, work has begun to build a 7.5 megawatt field in Mubuga, which is located about 100 kilometers outside the Burundian capital of Bujumbura. Now, the project, which includes a 12-kilometer transmission line, which will be needed to funnel power to the national grid, is projected to cost $14 million. Now, Gigawatt Global's co-founder and president, Josef Abramovitz, has said that his company is expecting to deploy $2 billion in renewable energy projects on the continent as partners of the White House Power Africa Initiative, which was instituted by the former U.S. President Barack Obama. Now, they see sub-Saharan Africa as a high-impact and high-growth marketplace that's suitable for building a portfolio of, of small, medium, and large power projects in, quote, the highest priority development areas. Now, this Burundi venture will be the company's 12th solar field that they've built around the world in places like the U.S. state of Georgia, as well as um, in Israel and other parts of the Middle East. Uh, But for Burundi, though, this constitutes the largest private international investment in the country's power sector in nearly 30 years. And once construction is complete at the end of 2017, the plant will be sold to Regideso, which is Burundi's national electric company. Meanwhile, at the southernmost tip of Africa, the city of Cape Town, South Africa, has seen the commissioning of what's been dubbed the continent's first large-scale waste-to-gas facility. Now, the New Horizon Energy Plant converts everyday household refuse from homes across the metro into biogas, recyclables, and carbon dioxide. Now, the South African gas company Afrox, which is a member of the German Linde Group, will be responsible for distributing the final products produced by the plant to the public. Now, according to a City of Cape Town official, the plant will deliver energy to the public at low cost. And this particular plant turns out to be the first of many others that are planned for launch in in other parts of South Africa's Western Cape province. And staying with South African news, let's talk about Ford, shall we? Now, we literally waited for the smoke to clear before talking about uh, the the folks at Ford, uh, Ford South Africa to be specific. Uh, Now, where to begin? Um, Perhaps one, two, maybe three, four, five, six, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. No, 
No, 39, folks, 39. Let's start with the number 39. Uh, 39 2014 Ford Cougar vehicles that had to catch fire in South Africa before the company finally agreed to recall them mid-last month. Now, compare that ridiculously slow response to what happened in the U.S. when a similar model uh, started showing signs of malfunction. Ford recalled the vehicle before any injuries occurred, but here in Africa, no, they wouldn't do that. Ford waited until the family of a certain 33-year-old named Rashal Jimmy, who was burned to death uh, beyond recognition when his car exploded in December 2015, while his family took them to task. And then, then they started to respond. And even after two forensic reports, one by police and another sought independently by the family, uh, even when those reports pointed to electrical causes for the explosion that, that, that killed Jimmy, Ford SA continued to deny any fault. And only after the whole palaver resulted in an embarrassing PR bloodbath on social media, when Cougar owners started sharing their near-catastrophic brushes with death by human barbecue, uh, only then did Ford eventually admit that no less than 4,566 vehicles built between December 2012 and February 2014 were indeed affected by an engine overheating issue which could lead to fires. Hashtag SMH. And so now word is at least 30 South Africans are preparing to file a class action suit against the company. And, and you know what? I hope Ford pays dearly so that they will never forget that this is Africa and lives here are worth just as bit as much as lives in America, New Zealand and blessed everywhere else. Cougars are sold. To Nigeria now, where Bastian Gotter, who is the co-founder and COO slash CFO of easily one of the most publicized new media startups on the continent, Iroko, well, he's called it a day. After four years with the company, he's said to be leaving them to pursue other ventures on the continent. He's being replaced by a dude named Lauren Miller, who will inhabit the role of CFO from the company's London office. Uh, and he comes uh, to Iroko after stints at Millicom, Paramount, Vodacom, JP Morgan and Chase, as well as Warner Brothers. Now, Gata has no doubt made a tidy return on the initial seed investment he made in Iroko of $150,000, uh, which earned him 50% of the business back in 2010. Now, during his tenure at Iroko, Gata and his more famous co-founder, Jason Njoku, raised an additional $33 million to grow the company into the multi-pronged entertainment hub it is today. Now, it's said that his experience in helping Iroko build up a startup investment portfolio through Spark that uh, includes the hotels booking platform Hotels NG, as well as the fintech startup Paystack, which recently closed a $1.3 million investment round. Uh, well, that experience should come in handy as uh, Gata looks to find and build up Quote, the next wave of truly exciting African tech companies. Now, staying with news out of Nigeria, Diamond Bank has celebrated a rather important milestone. They've recorded 2 million subscribers on their mobile app and Diamond Yellow platforms. And this is only a year since they hit the 1 million user mark. Now, I guess this demonstrates that while it's certainly tough going for financial services incumbents uh, who are trying to maintain their dominance, they are not to be underestimated. Now, Diamond Bank has attributed uh, its steady growth in digital services to their knack for packaging convenient banking services that people actually want and need. Now, their Diamond Yellow offering, which, of course, they teamed up with MTN to deliver, is particularly nifty. It 
It targets Nigeria's unbanked and underbanked segment and allows Diamond customers who roll with MTN to conduct banking transactions from their phones without data or Wi-Fi. So to me, this is the kind of you know, simple yet handy innovation I reckon will be hard to beat by newcomers if big legacy players continue to team up to go to market the way Diamond and MTN have. In this particular case, it'll be interesting to see if Diamond hits 4 million users as quickly as it hits 2 or sooner. To Kenya now, where the Bitcoin startup BitPesa has closed a $2.5 million funding round led by the US-based Draper VC. Now, also in on the deal was Greycroft Partners, an existing investors, Digital Currency Group, Pantera Capital Management, Blockchain Capital, Zephyr Acon, uh, Future Perfect VC, and Bank to the Future. Now, BitPesa's platform accepts Bitcoin payments and exchanges the cryptocurrency for local currencies, which it then pops into bank accounts or holds in mobile money wallets. And currently, users can transact in over 30 global currencies. Now, this latest round of investment easily makes BitPesa one of the continent's most popular Bitcoin investment tickets. Uh, what with the total amount of funding they've raised to date, totaling nearly six million US dollars since the company launched in 2013, they've certainly done well for themselves. So. Uh, BitPesa currently operates in Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, the DRC, the UK, and Senegal, but uh, they're reportedly planning to expand into other countries in West and Southern Africa while scaling in Europe at the same time. Now, speaking of Bitcoin, uh, heads up, because some people on the virtual currency bandwagon are up to no good. Um, case in point, the folks behind the Triple M pyramid scheme. Now, after breaking hearts and crashing dreams following the scheme's collapse, it seems the scheme is making a massive comeback in Nigeria and South Africa. And guess what? They're riding on Bitcoin. It hasn't even been a year since the dodgy scheme collapsed in those countries. And now its operators have the nerve to announce on Facebook that they've introduced a new cyber currency that's linked to Bitcoin. And they're calling it the Mavro BTC, folks. So anybody approaches you about something called Mavro BTC, run for the hills. And so following its launch in early January, people seem to be scrambling to sign up. Is this greed or desperation? I'm not sure now. But please, Africa, let's not do this again. The sayings are true. Easy come, easy go. It happened before, not just, not just years ago. Months ago, it happened before. And if it's too good to be true, it is. Steer clear of Triple M and Mavro BTC, for goodness sake. And now for some international news items to round things off. Uh, let's start with something I'm super excited about. And that's to announce that the biggest Africa-focused tech conference in France has officially opened early bird bookings. Now, the Afrobytes Conference is an annual international tech conference which connects business and technology leaders, uh, founders, investors, and policy experts based in France and its neighboring countries with the fastest growing African tech startups and the best possible ideas and insights. So shout out to Afrobytes co-founders Hawea Mohammed and Amin Youssef for birthing this concept. And this year, the conference is going to be bigger and better than ever. And how much bigger and how much better, you ask? Well, on the 8th and 9th of June 2017, Afrobytes will be taking over Station F. And what is Station F? Well, I thought you'd never ask. Station F is fixing to be the world's biggest startup campus. It's an initiative that's backed by entrepreneur and investor Xavier Neal. And the Afrobytes conference is set to be the first major conference to be hosted there following the campus's launch this April. 
So Paris is about to catch some proper African vibe. There's already a killer lineup of speakers confirmed for the event. Uh, think Toro Orero, Ionolua Aboyeji, Chris Foyalan, Annie Mutamba, Claude Grunitsky, and I'm just naming some folks. I'm also super excited to announce that this year, the African Tech Roundup is officially partnering with Afrobytes to glean insights from the conference, and we can't wait to see you all there. So here's what you need to do. Head to afrobytes.com, that's afro, B-Y-T-E-S.com, and you'll find all you need to know there. And most importantly, you'll be able to take advantage of those early bird booking rates. Right. And so what else is happening? Let's see. Let's talk Snapchat, shall we? Or at least Snap Inc., because that's the parent company that owns them. The hype is to be believed. Uh, Their looming IPO is likely to become the most expensive tech IPO in U.S. history. Now, the Wall Street Journal has called Snapchat the new reality TV And then many others around the world are diligently unpacking the company's cool factor, trying to explain how Snap Inc.'s fortunes aren't tied to a single much-loved app that Facebook so brutally photocopied via Instagram. Uh, So look, on one hand, um, I was one of those haters who thought Facebook was overpriced when they went public. At the time, I just couldn't see how Mark Zuckerberg was going to lead you know, Facebook to the kind of success that would deliver shareholders any serious value. But boy, was I wrong. But what's also true is that what I call the Facebook factor is going to create an insane amount of FOMO in the hearts of investors who missed the Facebook ship. Uh, and uh, they'll probably be looking to, to snap ink to, to, you know, to deliver the kind of results they might have missed out on when you know Facebook went public. Um, and I cite Facebook and not say Google uh, simply because Snap Inc., like Facebook, is going public largely on the strength of their sheer pulling power in the social media landscape. And so uh, let's see how this goes down. Are you keen to get your paws on some Snap Inc. stock? Well, if so, send us an email and let us know via hello at africantechroundup.com. And now on to some international hacking news. A group affiliated with Anonymous has broken into the servers of Freedom Hosting 2, which is a popular underground web host that's thought to contain something like one-fifth of the dark web. Now, these hackers broke in and shut the place down, my people. And they were not only content with replacing the thousands of websites uh, that they compromised with a message saying, hello, Freedom Hosting 2, you've been hacked. Uh, Not only did they do that, the hackers also copied the hosting services database and made it available to the public online. Now, the data dump is said to include the email details of nearly 381,000 users. Now, this has led to speculation that since Freedom Hosting 2 was popular with people involved in the creation and distribution of child pornography, the hackers were looking to name and shame. And I would bet that law enforcement officials are trawling through that email dump right now uh, in search of leads to new and existing child pornography cases. But I don't expect that they'll be sending anonymous any official thank you notes anytime soon. And so our last news item this week involves a large mobile telco. In fact, France's biggest wireless carrier. Less than two weeks since a Barty Ertel executive declared that the company would be offloading some of its loss-making investments on the continent, uh, you know, to lower its debt burden, uh, Orange has come out saying that they're looking for targets on the continent that can help the company grow revenue. Now, they've gone as far as saying that while they're open to opportunities all over the world, they consider Africa a priority. And according to Orange's commercial director, they're speaking to everyone. 
Now, I imagine that they're well aware of Bharti's uh, keenness to offload some of their assets on the continent. And while Orange has a presence in countries like Botswana, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, and even the DRC, where just last year they bought a business from Millicom International Cellular for $160 million, they must have their eye on a market as big as, say, Nigeria, where Bharti Airtel just happens to own a business. Hmm. So you see what I did there? I'm starting to feel like an old auntie trying to make a match. But if I'm honest, if Airtel Nigeria went up for sale, I'd rather see it go to someone like uh, Econet Wireless uh, just to see what Strive Masiwa might do in that market. You'll recall he turned his back on it all those years ago because he wouldn't do business uh, you know, under the table. Uh, he found that untenable. And I do sense a lot has changed in Nigeria. It might well be the kind of market that Strive would look into. And so that story provides the perfect segue to the conversation I'm about to play you. It's a chat I had with Lionel Schmileski. And Lionel is the CEO of Cambridge Broadband Networks, a.k.a. CBNL. It's a privately held multi-point microwave tech firm that's based in the UK. And um, their customer list includes uh, seven of the world's top 10 mobile operators and uh, includes African biggies like Vodacom and MTN. Now, Lionel has been part of the wireless industry since the early 1990s. And, and so I got him to share insights on the state of play on the continent's wireless network scene, where his company spends a great deal of time servicing clients and growing their footprint. So take a listen. Uh, what do you reckon the the next big trend in wireless technology globally would be? Uh, so speak globally first and then uh, specific to Africa. What's the next big thing globally and what's the next big thing as far as wireless technology on the continent? Yes, this is a very interesting question. And uh, I don't think that there's uh, the next big thing. Or I would say it differently. There's always a next big thing. But if you're looking at things that people are looking for, and I think that's true in several uh technology domains, not only in telecom. People are asking for more capacity. People are asking for a quicker time to market. People are asking for a, a very good quality of service. And people are asking for a low cost. And, you know, when you're looking at the, the, the computers, when you're looking at the smartphones, uh, that's basically the same trend. I think the, the interesting thing as a general trends in, in, in the market regarding telecom is, First, you're seeing people that want more and more video streaming. You're seeing people that are using more and more smaller and smaller smartphones. You're seeing people that are now moving into the Internet of Things. And then you're seeing people using more and more the cloud. And all of that requires... Uh, much more capacity. So you need to provide a network that accommodates with those requests in, uh, in high capacity. You know, 10 years ago, people were extremely happy when they had uh, one meg of traffic. Now they're asking for one gig of traffic. So, I mean, that, that, that's a natural trend. The other one, as I said, is time to market. Now people want to have things immediately. In the past, it was normal to wait uh, two months, three months to get a telephone line. Now people, when they go to, uh, I don't know, to an Orange, when they go to an EE, when they go to an MTN, to a Vodafone, they subscribe, they want to have the facility being provided to them right away. 
Then there's more and more demand, as I said, for uh, quality of service. I mean, uh, you're not expecting to have to wait a long time to, to see what you've downloaded. And you expect uh, the, what you're seeing either on your phone, on your computer, to be HD, so high definition or ultra high definition. So the, um, the, um, clearly the expectations have changed. And last but not least, I mean, uh, everyone wants to uh, have a better quality of service, higher capacity for a lower cost. And, you know, the competitive environment has allowed that to, to happen. So those are the general trends. So IoT, smartphones, video streaming, um, and the cloud. Uh, if you're looking at the specifics in, in Africa, ba basically people will require exactly the same thing. But the difference is that in Africa, in some of the countries, you have a, a more limited uh, infrastructure deployment. You all know that uh, the ARPU is much lower than what you see in other continents or other countries. You know, there are uh, quite a lot of countries where the ARPU in Africa is between 5 to $10, while when you're looking at what it is, for instance, in, uh, in, in, in the U.S., it's 10 times as, uh, as more in the U.S. Then the other thing which is very specific is uh, you have a pretty big digital divide. So you need to find an infrastructure that allows you to bridge that digital divide. And then, you know, you have areas where uh, you have extremely highly densified population and areas where you have almost no one there. So you need to, to find a, a way to build infrastructure to cope with all those uh, specifics in, in Africa. And I believe that uh, wireless is a technology that is an extremely good fit for that. And are you finding that uh, this is a utility-driven environment or a cost-driven environment where the consumer is sort of driving it? Um, or are, is big business still pretty much dictating terms in terms of, you know, what the market should take? What are you, what are you finding? Are you finding that the things you've described basically drive, uh, drive you guys to innovate in a certain direction? Or does it work the other way around? Do we... Are we content as consumers just to take what you're, you're putting out? Well, I think uh, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, and every country has its own uh, characteristics or, or specificity. Specificity, sorry. Um, we, we're seeing more and more. Uh, well, it, it's it's started in, in in some of the countries with the enterprise because those guys were uh, able to to pay a pretty high price. And thus, those guys were supposed to get a, a high uh, throughput, high capacity, high quality of service. But that has generalized to uh, the consumers now. And I think the expectations from the enterprise customers and from the residential customers are more or less the same. So it's just a matter of uh, fine-tuning what type of uh, deployment you want to do in order to accommodate for both. But I would say it's a, it's a general trend, and we're seeing a, a drive both on the enterprise side and on the consumer side. Right. So talk us through some of the newer emerging uh, operator business cases on the continent for how network functions, visualization, uh, NFV, uh, is creating uh, new multipurpose networks and supporting you know, more unified communication strategies. Talk us through some of the use cases for... Um, for a seamless uh, delivery of, uh, of communication. Yeah. So first, let me explain uh, how we, we are doing those uh, NFV. So 
I don't know how much you know about uh, point to multipoint, but uh, what, what we're doing here is that we're mutualizing uh, the infrastructure in, uh, at the hub site. And then we are basically sharing uh, through our software, we're sharing the capacity between several remote sites. So basically, you don't need to have at the hub site a, a one-for-one. You only have one piece of equipment, and then you're smartly sharing the capacity with uh, tens or hundreds of remote sites. So I think that's a very cost-effective and smart way to share capacity allowing still each of the remote terminals to have access to the full capacity. So that's how we, we are doing it. What is the, the more sort of traditional approach? What is the typical infrastructure, uh, you know, opposite what you've just told me? Yeah, so normally the typical infrastructure is to put one remote terminal, sorry, one equipment, one piece of equipment at the hub site for every remote terminal that you have. So this is what uh, people call point-to-point. The problem with point-to-point is that, you know, the more remote sites you have, the more expensive it is to build the infrastructure at the hub site. So that's why we, as CBNL, invented about uh, 16 years ago a concept that would allow uh, the remote site terminals to share the common infrastructure with a view, and that has always been our, our driving factor, with a view to reduce total cost of ownership for the enterprises and for the consumers. So basically... Is this designed as a complementary uh, technology to what's existing, or is it designed to replace it or improve upon it in, in, in time? It, it's, it's a combination of both. I mean, in some of the cases, we are replacing full point-to-point networks. In some of the cases, we are complementing uh, point-to-point networks. Depends of uh, what the operators or what the businesses want to, uh, to achieve. I think point-to-point, there's still some interesting advantages if you want to have extremely long range or extremely high throughput. But that has a price, that has a cost. Uh, but in cases where you have range up to 20 kilometers and when you have constraints on your spending, then a point-to-multipoint makes sense. So depending on what uh, type of network the operators want to build, it, we could be either replacing or complementing uh, a point-to-point network. And what is but I do imagine for like a small country, like for smaller countries on the continent, I think of countries like Guinea, uh, perhaps countries like uh, Swaziland or Lesotho, for example, also considering, uh, you know, countries like Rwanda, they've got like uh, very mountainous and, and uh, you know, uh, very, lots of vegetation and that kind of thing. I'd, I'd imagine kind of, um, situations like that would be excellent use cases for the kind of technology. Yeah, sure. So what, what, what is a good use case for that technology is clearly when you don't want to or you cannot deploy uh, fiber networks. You know, the, the beauty of fiber is that it is unlimited capacity. So once the, the fiber is deployed, then you have extremely good access to high capacity. But the problem with fiber is also its cost. It, it, it's very, it costs lots of money to deploy because you need to, to dig trenches. 
then you need to to, to build the, the fiber network and sometimes you know in in regions or uh, landscape that you've mentioned it's not something you can do you know when you have mountains and everything not easy to build a fiber network so once again you have to take into account the topology of your country uh, and and then find the best uh, the best solution, but uh, the the nice thing with uh, with uh, wireless networks and particularly point to multi point wireless networks is that you can deploy deploy very quickly, because you know it takes uh, it takes a couple hours to build a few sites on uh, point to multi point technology. The beauty of point to multi point, as I explained, is you go only once to the hub, and then whenever you add remote terminals, you know, you don't need to go back to the hub to deploy further uh, equipment. So, I mean, while on point-to-point, point, whenever, as I said, whenever you deploy uh, uh, a remote terminal, you need to deploy one piece of equipment at the hub. So, beauty of uh, of point-to-multi-point is also time-to-market and uh, uh, how quick it is to deploy a network. But I do imagine that on the flip side, there are also limitations in as far as, you know, capacity and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're thinking in terms of population growth and things like that, uh, am I correct? Yeah, well, so, so and I believe there's, there's, there's a fit for each of those technologies. And that's why, by the way, I mean, uh, the operators are mixing in their network fiber and only they're using the fiber for the, 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 the big uh, and, and long haul network. And then as uh, when you're getting closer to the edge, then you're seeing more and more wireless. Because that makes uh, that makes more sense. So normally for the big, either submarine or ter- terrestrial backbone networks, you see fiber, and then you see that being distributed through wireless. I suppose on on many levels these are economic matters, and perhaps that's where your MBA comes in. I think for the everyday person, um, we probably don't realize just how much uh, you know economics factor into you know network design and maintenance and certainly upgrades and things like that. So, you know, speak to people, you know, listening to us right now who are adamant that the public is being overcharged for mobile data or, or, or broadband. Uh, what makes delivering mobile data, uh, you know, a challenge to deliver in Africa and perhaps more of a challenge than, say, delivering, um, you know, broadband via fiber networks elsewhere in the world. What, are we, what, what might we not be fully understanding as a public with regards to, to how these services are delivered? So th- there are several things. Um, you know, when, when operators are charging uh, customers, either uh, consumers, uh, residential or enterprises, there are few things to take into account. First thing is how much does it cost them to deploy their network? So not only the uh, the cost of the infrastructure, but the cost of the maintenance of the network, the cost of the spectrum when they have to buy spectrum, uh, the cost of the maintenance, uh, all those costs uh, could, could, could be uh, pre- pretty heavy. So that's, that's the first element. So how much does it cost them to build a network and to run a network? Second thing is, okay, what is the competitive environment? Uh, is it uh, one competitor? Is it 10 competitors? Uh, that, that has an impact as well. And third thing is what are the customers, either enterprises or residential, are willing to, to pay? 
Uh, so they have to take that into account whenever they they charge or they price their uh, their services. Generally speaking, um, building a, a fiber network is quite expensive. As I said previously, once it is built, then of course it provides a, a, a great deal of, of capacity. But I think the problem with that is the operators have to make a pretty heavy upfront investment. And thus, if they want to make their business case uh, reliable and sustainable, they have to charge uh, at a pretty high price. The beauty of uh, wireless, and more particularly the point-to-multipoint wireless networks that uh, CBNL uh, delivers and supplies, is that you can basically pay as you grow. So you can start with a pretty uh, modest network, let's say one access point and one remote terminal, and then as you're getting more and more businesses, you can invest more and more in your network. So then you can have a, uh, you, you can have a, a very interesting pricing model to your, uh, to your customers. Then, as I said, in terms of investment itself, because of the point-to-multipoint and virtual networks that we're providing, the total cost of ownership, both OPEX and CAPEX, is between 30 to 50% uh, less expensive with our technology than other point-to-point -point or fiber technologies. So yes, uh, I, I would consider that as being an opportunity more than a, a challenge, and this is why we're seeing more and more uh, customers. This is why we're getting more and more new customers uh, in Africa and ge generally speaking all around the world. And so, what do you make of the, all the recent announcements uh, that we've we've heard? You're probably you're quite in touch with what's happening here on the continent, particularly in South Africa. Uh, there've been announcements by the likes of Vodacom, MTN, as well as smaller companies like Dark Fiber Africa, all declaring how they'll be investing aggressively in IoT infrastructure over the next couple of years. Would your would your technologies be um, at play in these sort of uh, endeavors? Yes, we, we clearly are, and we, we have been for quite a while. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, all those new technologies or new, I would say, um, ways of communicating will create a bottleneck at, at a certain level of the network. So, for instance, if you take IoT, IoT is normally a pretty low speed, pretty low capacity moving from one place to another place, but there are thousands or millions or billions of, of those devices. And, you know, when you're looking at IoT, uh, there's probably going to be about 50 billion uh, connected devices in the next five to seven years. So lots of devices, pretty low throughput, but those devices at some point need to go to the core of the network. So you need to find ways to aggregate all those low speeds um, um, connections into a, a pretty high capacity uh, pipe. So this is where we're playing. So we, we are working a lot on finding the best and the most cost-effective ways to, uh, 
to optimize how we are aggregating the IoT uh, to the core of the network. When I think of the kind of technology you guys are involved in, I think of uh, some of your larger competitors, the Huawei's of this world and uh, your ZTEs, etc. Who is eye level um, as far as you're concerned in terms of uh, the, the size of your business, the, the, the projects that you typically roped into? Um, give me an example of someone who uh, you might consider a direct competitor to what you're doing. I mean, granted, you've got unique technologies, but in terms of like delivering solutions, who 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 in the world do you guys uh, peer? Do, do you consider a peer? Uh, well, you know, if you're looking at how um, we could segment the, the the market, so you you have companies that are doing the same things as we do, which is um, point to multi point license wireless technologies. And there's a couple of companies that are uh, active in that uh, in that segment, but you know CBNL is clearly the leader with, uh, I would say, 40 to 50 percent market share. So that that's one type of competitors. Then you have all the big players, people like uh, you know the Huawei, the ZTE, the Ericsson, the Nokia that you mentioned, that are mostly providing. Uh, point-to-point technologies. They're also providing fiber, but on on the wireless side, they're providing point-to-point technologies. And this is really the market that we are now tackling. In the past, there was a pretty big gap between point-to-point and point-to-multi-point. Point-to-point being higher capacity, uh, much longer range, but that gap is now becoming... Uh, narrower and narrower. So there's almost no uh, major differences in terms of capacity between point-to-point and point-to-multi-point. So my my point to speak so is that now we are targeting at replacing more and more of those point-to-point networks uh, being sold by the, the big guys, as I call them. Many, many thanks to Lionel Schmileski for making the time to be on the show. To listen to the conversation I had with Lionel in its entirety, head over to africantechroundup.com and click on the Quick Tech Chats playlist in the main menu. And of course, once again, many thanks to GoDaddy for sponsoring this episode of African Tech Conversations. Remember, you too can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30% at trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. And that's the week's show, folks. Do join me again next week on africantechroundup.com. But for now, I'm Andile Masu. Until next time, do take care, Africa. 